Good morning. As John said, that this is Advent, and it is the first day of Advent. This season's four Sundays long, and it is the Advent to our Christmas. Advent literally means an arrival, um, an appearing, something that comes into place. It's an old word that we don't use that much, but many of the attributes of Advent do appear in many of our other events in our life. And there is no biblical precedent for our liturgical year on this, but I do believe we're going to see there is much of Advent in the Bible. Events in our lives that actually bring out some of these attributes are when we expect people or expect visits in our lives, like when the grandchildren come to visit. There's an expectation of what they're going to do or what they're going to do to you. Um, how about those family gatherings, you know, where everybody comes from far and wide, even that part of the family that nobody gets along with? There's usually an awful lot of emotion and expectation associated with those as well, and sometimes, oftentimes, it's not managed as well as it should be. How about the first time that someone brings home a boyfriend or a girlfriend home to visit the family? Now, that's expectation. We've even had movies made of that. One, and I may be dating myself here, is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? <laughs> but there's a more recent one, Clueless, which has a good line in it, which I'm waiting for someday to get to use. And that's when uh, the boy comes to the door for a date. The father answers the door and says, if anything happens to my daughter, I got a 45 and a shovel, and nobody's going to miss you. <laughs> Still waiting for that day when I can use that line. But I've memorized it, committed it. Um, but then how about the advent of the four weeks leading up to the SEC championship game? That was good. We have a championship, and we have a champion as well. Um, and the champion is actually something we're going to actually come back to later. But our advent season takes this expectation and it's focused more on the birth of a child and in a manger, and yet it's much more than that. It is those four weeks that lead up to Christmas, and today I'm going to focus in on that expectation. I hope that by the time we finish the sermon, within the next hour and a half, um, you'll realize that Advent's not weeks long, not four weeks, not four months, not four years but actually thousands of years long. It has to do with expectations that begin at the beginning. And through this process, I also hope that we'll get to learn a little bit more about the how and what of God's plan. At this time, um, we should read the scripture, which isn't what we haven't done yet, haven't we? So if you would stand, if you could, it's not a large one. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. And you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman 
between your offspring and heirs. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let me just take a moment to pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we give thanks for every opportunity that we get to praise your name. We get to study your word, we get to preach your word, and hear your word. We ask now that you clear our hearts and minds for your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 3, it's in that part of that Bible which many of us know. It's the curse chapter. It's what causes us to uh, look at Adam and Eve and their original sin or sins. And this is where Adam is tempted, or Eve is tempted, by the serpent. She eats the apple. Then Adam stands around like a doofus and does nothing. And then he takes a bite. Doofus is a theological term. (laughs) In this scene, we have the sins of omission and sins of commission, which forgiveness really is not enough. And it will not reverse the curse that awaits them in these things. And when they come to God and God kicks them out, it seems pretty much that all the curses of Genesis 3 are fulfilled. There's pain in childbirth. There's a reason why they call labor, labor. Um, There's the frustrated toil of mankind as well. And yes, the snake travels in or at least eats of the dust of the earth as well. So everything seems to have come right to fruition right after they get kicked out of the garden. But there is one thing that still remains open. And that's what we find in verse, verses 14 and 15. It is in the curse of the serpent that we have much of um, what isn't fulfilled. In verse 15, let me read this. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The first word, enmity, you have to practice if you want to learn how to say that. It's hard. I get the N and the M reversed most of the time. But it really means to put in opposition between or between two parties. So, Right here, God is saying, I'm going to put sort of a barrier between you so that you are opposing one another. He says, between you and the woman, the woman obviously being Eve, and you being the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall crush his heel. One of the things here, and what we see here, is the word seed. In many of your Bibles, you will read offspring or descendants. And sometimes translations do that to make it easier for understand. But they do lose some of the uh, major themes in the Bible because we don't see the word as being the same throughout. The word seed occurs 60 times in in the book of Genesis alone. It's a very prominent theme. And right from Genesis, it spends a lot of time establishing this seed promise and then tracing that seed 
and then keeping lineages to identify who that seed is later. Maybe that will give you a little bit more incentive to read lineages, like the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. How many Bible studies do we ever have in First Chronicles? Not many, and certainly not on the first nine chapters. So, Then there's this thing about the head crushing. This is not always a pleasant image to us, but it is the image of the champion. It's not a football team. It's not a group of people. It is one person. It's a champion that is standing there victoriously. And when we go back and look at ancient history, this is an image that just about everybody back then would have clearly just latched onto, and it's, but it's not something that we would look and we would say in normal day-to-day language. If you go back to the history of Assyria and Babylon, you will see the same very image. And it is the picture of a champion standing over the head of the conquered. Sometimes the head is separated from the conquered. So, And this is an image that can get quite gory. I won't go into all of those for the Sunday morning. But we do have an example in the Bible. And in the Bible, we do have David standing over the head of Goliath. He's standing there like a champion. And in many ways, he's sort of a type of what's being described here in the book of Genesis. Now, what David does with the head after that gets pretty gruesome. He carries it all the way to Jerusalem, and then he shows it to them, and then he brings it back to the king. So um, it clearly is a symbol of being a champion. But then there's also the mention of the bruising, in that he will bruise his heel, but serpent seed will get his head crushed. This is interesting. It does tell us that what happens to the champion will be small compared to what happens to Satan or the serpent. Think of this. In Isaiah 53, and I'm actually now shifting to Easter, so pardon me for a moment. Um, It says there that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace is upon him, and with with his stripes we are healed. It's clear that the bruising of his heel is related to, or a symbol of, his crucifixion on what he did for us. That's a little. He's considered that's the small part. We can only, I think, through Scripture, actually study to figure out how enormous it is what God did accomplish there and how enormous that is that's being represented by the crushing head of the snake. So Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Some say drove out of the garden. Some say they used a Cadillac to drive out of the garden. But they were kicked out. So what do we do now? Well, we go to Genesis 4, verse 1. And we see what Adam and Eve do. Well, it says, Now Adam Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again this time his brother Abel. There's a lot here. Eve is expecting, and I mean just not expecting, 
She's expecting more than expecting. Um, yes, there is a child, and it is Cain. But it seems that she also has this ex expectation that this is the one that is promised. This is the champion that was promised. This is the last piece from her perspective that has to fall into place from Genesis 3. She's acquired the man from the Lord. It's not like she doesn't know where babies come from. This means clearly, I believe, that she knows that this is a special person from God, the champion that's been um, she's awaiting for. And this will fulfill it. She must be feeling good. She's boasting. What if we were to ask Eve, how's that working for you now? Well, the rest of the story is kind of interesting. It says, Cain kills Abel. Cain is further kicked out, sort of twice removed now from the presence of God. It's essentially uh, because Adam is kicked out. He's once removed from the presence of God, and now he's kicked out to the land of Nod, which means wanderings. And then he goes there and builds a city, a city which he names after his son, Enoch. This is not good. You think you would build a city, you might build it and name it after God? That's quite a contrast. He's building a city of man, not a city of God. And those of you who are well-read from Augustine, he actually has a book called that. It makes that comparison. I don't have any quotes from Augustine. I'm sorry, but um, there are probably many. I would say that Eve is disappointed at this point because things didn't work out the way that she thought. She thought that this was the one. It wasn't the one. And she rightly, I believe, awaits, expects our advent, the arrival of this champion but wrongly assumes as to the timing, and that it would be directly to her and not just through her seed. She boasts of the Lord, and, and who wouldn't? If you thought that this was the one, and you gave birth to her, to him, um, you would boast too. As we know, later on, Mary shall give praises and sing a song. This is speculation on my part, but I think Adam and Eve really under, underestimated the seriousness of the ordeal that happened in the Garden of Eden, that sin thing. There's no quick fix, and there's no fix that happens quickly. But her expectation does not fade, and I don't think either should ours as well. So what do Adam and Eve do? We go to the end of Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife, and she bore a son, and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to whom also a son was born, he named him Enosh. And then man began began to call on the name of the Lord. There's a lot here and a lot in, in the names as well. One thing is, is that Eve realizes and admits that Cain wasn't the one. She says, another seed for Abel. Well, Abel was killed. Well, now she kind of thinks, well, maybe Abel was the one. 
and but he got killed. So Seth now is to replace him, but we also have Enosh as well. Remember it said in chapter 4 that it said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And that's really a wordplay on the word, the name Cain as well. And Abel also has a wordplay on the word appointed. So she understands that not only did God, she's expecting that God will have given her something, but that this person will also be appointed by God as well. And she continues to wait for the seed, the seed that was promised in the garden that would crush the head of the serpent. So everything seems on track now, because in the end of this thing, it says, and man began to worship on the name of the Lord. And this, when we see this in the Bible, it is a way of saying that it says to call upon the name of the Lord, but it is interpreted to mean that they started to worship the Lord. So things look pretty well. Well, not exactly. If we read back in through chapter 4 and chapter 5, we find that things get worse and worser and worse. So in one sense of, of this, too, we get an idea of just how depraved man becomes. And it is Lamech, one from the line of Cain, who says this, For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech is avenged seventy-sevenfold. Lamech is declaring himself um, greater than God, and it's not always easy to see. The punishment that he's giving out for wounding a person or striking him um, is he treats as seventy-sevenfold because he kills him. Now, Cain kills Abel, and what's the punish God gives him? Well, he just sends him away. He doesn't kill him. And I would have to say that somebody just striking you is a lot less than just killing you, and yet Lamech's punishment is so much more. And this is his way of showing that he is a great God. And this ordeal goes on and culminates in what God gets so disgusted with, and it culminates in that ordeal of the flood. And he's going to destroy the entire creation. With one exception, and I'll call him the great eight. Noah's family. He says after the flood, and obviously I'm compressing an awful lot of history here, that God spoke to Noah and to his son, saying, Behold, I myself will establish a covenant with you, and with your descendants after you. That is the word seed. So we're still tracing the seed in Genesis chapter 9. I don't think Noah thought that he was the seed, but he clearly understood that the seed was promised to him. And, but what happens even after Noah gets the promise, things continue in that cycle of going worse and worser. It ends up with a rebellion, a Tower of Babel, people speaking in different languages that they can't understand. And we kind of lose track of the descendancy or the seed of Noah. But things really are much better now. Consider this. What if God destroyed 
all of the descendants of the seed of the woman. He destroyed all of mankind. You can't fulfill the promise that's in Genesis 3. There's no way. There's no seed. There's no seed of the woman because he's destroyed all of mankind. So God saves eight people to keep that promise alive so it doesn't go extinct. And then the earth is Adam, uh, Noah is fruitful and multiplies, once again, just like Adam did, and he repopulates the earth. So the risk now of losing that promise through not having anybody who's of the seed of the woman is now greatly reduced because now we have a populated earth once again. Let me move forward quickly to Abram. I think... Most of us know Abram. He's, the, he's considered the father of, of the Jews in many ways. He's the one who receives a promise from God. And that promise, he says that I will make you a great nation and make your name great and all the families of the earth will be blessed. He says this while uh, Abram is living in the Ur of Chaldees which is north, most people think it's in southern Mesopotamia, but it's actually north of uh, Israel. He's 75 years old. He's well-to-do. He's rich. We've actually found cities named after his uh, brothers and sisters and his fathers. He's set in his ways. And yet God says, go to the land that I will show you. And he gets up and leaves. Let's move forward to Genesis 15. This is like 10 years later. Abram is now 85, 86. Sarah, or Sarai, is 75. They still don't have any children. Now here's the problem. How do you become a great nation, or how do you make yourself a great name when you don't have any kids? I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, no seed, no kingdom, no great name. Abraham says to God, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram says again, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, referring to Eliezer of Damascus, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him inside and said, look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them.